0: Uh, This semester, we are studying the book of Genesis as a part of a sermon series that we've called, Why Are We Here? Why Are We Here? Now, that question, why are we here, it works on a couple of different levels. Uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and as such, it tells the origin of all things, and particularly the history of humanity and God's dealings with them, And as such, it kind of tells how things were set up originally, like the passage we just read. It gives us the beginning of our story and helps us to answer a little bit about uh, why any of this is here. Uh, But that is not the primary question, right? Not the primary question that Genesis seeks to answer. Uh, Genesis, we have to remember, was not written to 21st century Americans with a scientific method in mind, uh, with our inquiries as to the existence of God, the origin of the universe, or the evolution of man. Though, uh, if you listen to many debates about Genesis, you might get the opposite idea, that basically this book is just a uh, glorified scientific textbook. Uh, That's not the case. Instead, Genesis is actually uh, one of... Five books that actually form uh, something called the Pentateuch, or the Book of the Law, or, or just the Law. Uh, as such, right, it is actually primarily written to God's Old Testament people, the Israelites. That is who the book is for. Uh, that's that's who it's written to. I should say it's for us, but it's to them. That's the original audience, God's people, freshly liberated from their bondage in Egypt. Right, sitting on the other side of the Red Sea that they've crossed through on dry land. And you've got to imagine they're wondering, why are we here? Right? Why are we here before this God and what does he want from us? Genesis is God's answer to that question, why they are there, why God has brought a people to himself. And likely, penned by Moses, it's, it's God's explanation of this nation Israel, their origin story, and their place in the creative world. So as we read it then, tonight, in light of Christ and being ingrafted by faith into God's people, when we place our faith in him, we too can learn our place in the story. While not a science textbook, it is God's revelation to his people, how his plan for the world began. And it's vital that we know that origin story. Right, it's vital that we know stories uh, to discover where we are going. We must know where we've been, and we understand this about many things. That you have to know what's what's come before before you can know what comes next. Right, it's why almost all call co- uh, like comic books start with some sort of an origin story. Right, you don't really understand why Peter Parker is a web slinging, you know, Spider-Man uh, beating up all the bad guys. Right, you don't really understand his motivation for catching these criminals until you comprehend that he uh, lost his Uncle Ben uh, to a couple of criminals that he himself could have stopped but didn't, right? It helps you understand why he does what he does. And uh, to speak more pointedly even to our own day, right, I I think about uh, events that are happening in our world right now and how important it is to understand stories, right? So take the insurrection last month at the Capitol. I'm not gonna say anything overly political, I promise. Uh, the point there being, right? Right after that event happened, I saw two very different narratives about what had occurred at the Capitol. One was that a uh, spurred on by uh, protests of uh, from Donald Trump, the former president, that there had been massive amounts of election fraud. People took to the US Capitol to demand justice. The uh, other, or just to make a mess of things, however you wanted to put it, uh, the other narrative was that there were Antifa, this like leftist group that actually was all disguised as Trump people, and they were the ones who stormed the Capitol and made all the Trump supporters look bad. Right Now, I'm not, I'm not even talking about which one of those is true, but depending on which one you believe, right, depending on the origin story, how it all began, is going to drastically affect what we need to do next. Right? We understand in both the macro level and a micro level, just you know, from Peter Parker, just like one person in a story, to a macro level about our culture, that if you don't understand the origins, if you don't understand the things that lead up to events, it's very, very hard to know what to do next. Knowing the origin gives us the proper lens, the correct worldview with which to see ourselves and to know how to make decisions. So as we approach our text tonight, right, we are looking at that origin story. Why are we here? And hopefully that will tell us a little bit about what we are to do next. Let's pray and then we'll dive in. Oh Lord, uh, we do pray uh, that uh, in this uh, room with its two fireplaces and uh, cozy friends, uh, that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, I thank you for, for speaking, for telling us about yourself, for telling us about ourselves. Uh, we pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so remember, we're trying to answer the question, why are we here? Uh, the first thing, if you look at this passage, right, I want you to take a, take a long survey of it a little bit. The first thing you'll probably notice about this passage is, is that the narrative seems to take place over 7 days. Now, let's talk about these 7 days. Uh did God really create everything in 6 calendar days and did he rest on the 7th? And I know you're also wondering, what about the dinosaurs? Right? Where were they? Where was where was the day where God made the dinosaurs and how did that all work out? Uh well, before we answer any of those things, I before we take those uh, the questions we might ask of this text, I want us to first hear what this text has to say to us, right? Let's take this narrative as a whole for a second. In verses one and two, we get some background information. If you look there, get some background information leading up to the creation narrative itself. We're told uh, of the principal creation event, the first one that in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. There was, at one time, nothing besides God. Then God created the universe, heavens and earth. And in verse 2, we are told that these heavens and this earth are without form and void. So we actually are not surprised, it's unsurprising to notice a, a poetic pattern in the arrangement of the next six days, right, as, as God creates the first three comprised of of God's creation of spaces, right? Light and darkness on day 1, the sky on day 2, and earth with its bodies of water and dry land on day 3. Right? He's he's creating spaces on the first on the first 3 days, and then the next 3 days God fills that place that is without form and void. He gives it a sun, moon, stars, fish, land animals, and birds culminating on the sixth day with humanity. What was once form and without void is filled. This is clearly a poetic device, one of many found in the narrative. Uh, there's also repetition. On each day God creates through through speaking. He expresses his wish, right? Let there be, and as a result, we have a repeated repeated uh, repeated refrain of, and it was so. God merely expresses a desire and these things come into being. Uh, You get the sense that God isn't really exerting much effort uh, in creating these things, that he just speaks and they are. We also get a repetition of God's blessing, his creation at the end of each day. He says that it is good with the sixth day being very good. And we'll return to that in a moment. And the final repetition we see is that each day ends with the refrain There was evening and morning. Just as our days of work are capped by evenings of rest, so also God's work days had nights of rest between them. There were evenings and mornings. The combination of all these things can lead us to draw uh, at least one conclusion. The, The account itself is poetic in nature. Uh, unlike the narrative that follows in chapter two after verse three, where we zoom in on the creation of Adam and Eve on the sixth day, this narrative bears a great many signs that it's not merely just like a play-by-play of what happened one after the next thing of these seven first seven days of the universe's existence. But here's the question, right? If I just said it was poetic, right? When we talk about poetry usually in 21st century America, we mean things that didn't happen, right? Like that it's it's, uh, like, figurative or something like that. Uh, does, and the question we might ask is, does that mean it's not true? This high, exalted language, not even using the, the uh, sun or moon, calling them greater and lesser lights, like, is, does that mean that this is all meant to be taken as, like, a big metaphor? Uh, it's not really true? Well, I would, I would argue no. Uh, just because something is poetic does not make it untrue. Right. In Exodus, We know this uh, elsewhere in the Bible too, right? In Exodus 14, we're told that the Israelites, in their departure from Egypt, Pharaoh pursued them through the Red Sea and caused, uh, after the Israelites had, had walked through on dry land, caused the Red Sea to actually collapse in on Pharaoh and his army. And uh, the next chapter in Exodus 15, Moses recounting the same event Poetically, through a song, describes the scene as one in which the Egyptians were shattered by God's right hand. Now, which was it? Was it that they were crossing through the Red Sea on dry land or that God shattered them with his right hand? Both. The answer is both, right? Both are true accounts of the same thing, right? But they have different ways of explaining it. Uh, Just because something is poetry doesn't mean that it's not historically true. But poetry does require the reader to ask, why are these events being told the way that they're being told, right? For Moses at that point, right, when he, uh, in Genesis, when he's uh, describing, or sorry, in Exodus, when he's describing the first event, he's telling us how it happened in more of a historical narrative. And then the next moment, he's telling us why it happened, Right? It wasn't just that the waters happened to collapse in on the Egyptians. It's that God secured the Israelites' freedom. Right? So we see that, uh, we see that um, there are reasons behind why someone might choose poetry, why someone might uh, elect to tell something through a poetic lens. And God himself actually, we don't have to wonder, why did, why did Genesis get told this way? We can see it. Uh, and it's actually, as a matter of fact, a part of the 10 commandments in Exodus 28 through 11. God says this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. For, for this is the reasoning that God gives for making uh, Sabbath observant a, a commandment. In six days... The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Uh, The creation account from Genesis 1, right, is designed as an analogy for our work week, right? That God created in seven days. Now, this doesn't mean that he didn't create, right? He created in seven days. Uh, He... Acted that It's all historically accurate. But what we're supposed to gain from this narrative is not how long, like were they 624 calendar days? Was it, can you tell me when the dinosaurs came in, right? I, I mentioned those things earlier because that's not the point of the narrative, right? God is revealing to us here later on, a little farther down the road to his covenant people, explaining why he tells the story the way that he does. And it is, because he wants us to know that we work 6 days just as he worked 6 days and we rest on the 7th day just as he rested on the 7th day right and you, and you get this sense in the story too why is god resting why is god resting at all he speaks and it comes into being is he really that tired and yet the narrative tells us that he is right that god uh on the seventh day, God had finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day because of all the work he had done. Uh, that he was, yeah, that, that he had to rest because of all the work that he had done. Right? Now, you and I talking, we don't go. I mean, I've already said many more words probably than this passage actually says. And I'm not that exhausted. Right? But God intentionally rests on the seventh day. He enters into a Sabbath rest. God worked in creation and is pictured as a worker who creates each day and rests each night. This is why we find on the sixth day, uh, God's creation mandate to all of humanity as well, right? In verse 28, look with me at verse 28 for a second. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God on some level right has has invited us to participate in his creative work. He's left his creation unfinished. Humans are placed in just one spot on earth in the garden of Eden as co-creators and there's actually an expectation that they are going to go finish what God has started. Not uh they aren't going to create in the same way as God, right? They're not going to take things from nothing and make them into something. They're going to work with the materials God has given them, but they are to work as God has worked. So while this passage really says nothing about dinosaurs or uh, how long it took, I would say, how long it took to make the earth, there are people who disagree, for the record. And if you want to talk about that, if you're like, it was six calendar days and it has to be that way, I'd love to talk to you about that. And if you're here and you're like, I've always heard it was six calendar days. That's weird. And I, you know, I've always stumbled over this. Uh, We can talk about that too. I invite invite discussion. But what I would say principally, this passage uh, is actually talking more about uh, God and his purposes for us, uh, why we are here, than it's talking about our scientific queries. So why are we here? Well, the first answer we could give is that we're here to work and rest, right? What God is telling us in this passage is that uh, as he created things, he wants us to work the same way. We are here to work and to rest. This means that you, as you work your job, many of you guys work at least one job. Some of you work two. Uh, Right now, you, you might feel like your job doesn't matter, that all you do is make pot belly sandwiches, or I don't know, uh, you mop the floors at the, the Zalazo Center, and nobody's even in there. So it's, there's no even point to it, right? I don't, I don't know what your, what your job is, but what I, say, what, what I would say is that this dignifies your work, right? That God has actually tasked his people, tasked human beings with loving and displaying his goodness and his makership to the world, and that we shouldn't take that lightly that we get to participate in that work. And in a larger way in college, you're actually at least, even if you don't have a job right now, you are working towards being God's provision to his world. That as we pray, uh, give us this day our daily bread, God can answer that prayer through your making of a potbelly sandwich. (laughs) Right? Uh, That you will answer that prayer in making things, bridges, designing things, uh, whatever it is you're studying here. And some of you guys are going to be like, well, I'm not really making anything or doing anything with the elements. And God said that we're supposed to like subdue the earth. So I don't know if I'm doing that. Well, I would I would say this too. You'll notice that God says to fill the earth, right? That humanity should spread across the earth. If you're somebody who's here and you're more in the humanities, uh, you're more in the arts, right? You make you make things like music or, I don't know, painting or something. I would I would say this, uh, as God's people or as people were expected to move across the earth, to fill the earth, what they were going to encounter is different climates, right? Different uh, raw materials, uh, different ways of living that would influence their day-to-day lives. uh, And that means like what they would eat, uh, the art they could create, all of that would have to be different. And in other words, God invites us to make culture. Right, that, this, that this creation mandate that God gives us here, that we work alongside him, that it's actually God inviting us to make culture, to dance and paint and write and sing uh, as, as we spread out over the earth. And to put it crudely, some of you, uh, right, the, the reality is some of you are called to be like thing makers and some of you guys are called to be like culture makers. But either way, right? what we would say is you are invited to participate in creation. God smiles upon our work. I say this too. Uh, some of you guys are like, yeah, work, right. Work is important. I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, I also don't want you to miss this. Rest is important, right? Uh, maybe you find your identity in work and you're like, I'm nothing if I'm not working, you know? i I. I'm getting behind. All I'm doing is getting behind on school loans, getting behind on putting food on the table, I'm behind on whatever. If I'm not working, I'm dying. The whole point is to work. And you might work 7 days a week. What I would say to you is that God is inviting you to step out in faith and to not make your life about work exclusively. Some people will need to hear this passage as a rebuff to working all the time, workaholism, finding their identity in that. Uh Whichever one you might drift into, I would just encourage you to see that God himself works six days, dignifies that, and rests on the seventh. Well, uh, why would we do that, though, right? If that's Okay, so God thinks that's how we should work. That's how he even tells us how he created everything. But, like, why would we do that? Why does it matter how God has created us? Uh, that may be how the story begins. I know you were saying it's important to know how the story begins, Nick, but what if I don't like how it begins, where God made things? So what if I want to do what I want to do uh, and it doesn't matter to me what this passage says? Well, um, not just about work, but even beyond that. Well, let's revisit some of those repetitions I mentioned earlier, uh, particularly that God created each day and he called it good. One of the fundamental truths at the heart of this story is that God is not only depicted as a worker, but also as a king. As a king over this creation, he issues decrees and they come to pass every day he speaks and things come into being. He shares provision and protection with his subjects, people, in verses 29 and 30. And he even imbues these subjects with his kingly image, right? You get a, uh, I think about um, like old medieval battles where you would have like a, a sign or whatever and it would bear the king's crest and you like march into battle. Some of you guys don't know what I'm talking about. Watch Braveheart sometime. Uh the, the the point there being, right, that he is baked into creation his goodness, just as kings bake into their government various laws that that reflect their understanding of what is good in their realm. Right? They might have goodness like prohibitions against harming a neighbor, or even positive laws that you have to obey like tax codes that provide for schools or care for the poor. Right, kings legislate, and uh, that legislate, that legislation tells you something about who they are. And God here is pictured as a king, as one who has dominion over his realm and gives it vice regents, uh, gives a vice regency, like uh, sharing some of his power with his subjects, as they are supposed to work for him. As creator, God rightfully sets laws as king, and he alone determines what is right and good and true, for he is the only one who would know. That's why he keeps saying over and over again that things are good. So why are we here? Well, besides to work and rest, we are here because it's good, because God is good. Uh, That's our second answer. Uh, because God is good. Does this make God, uh, right, this exclusive, this idea that God is a king, we don't really like kings in America, we rebelled against one, so we have kind of a chip on our shoulder against such things. Is God a a bully or demanding uh, to keep us from doing what we want to do, right, that we have to do what he desires, that he decides what is good? Well, that would depend on whether God's character itself is true and good, right? If it's baked into the world we live in, if he really has made everything good, then we should see uh, that as we act out in the world the way that God has rightfully ordered it, the way he says we ought to live, then we should see that good follows those things, uh, that it brings life to us, not death, and that God is not bullying you for telling you no to certain things, but instead is actually inviting you into life. Right. When, I, uh, when I was a kid, I went to our local pool. I, uh, like not the pool pool, but like the swim pool. Uh, I went to our local pool. And it was, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen The Sandlot, but it was very similar to that. And essentially uh, I could walk there every day and I'd meet all my buddies there. And I was told to stay in the shallow end because I couldn't swim very well yet. I was very young. and uh, But there was this thing at the pool, there was this big slide, like a really huge slide and it was right next to the shallow end. It was not like, I kept, I, in my opinion, it, it, as a young kid, I was like, that's basically the shallow end. In fact, as you got onto the slide from the shallow end, right, you had to, you actually got out of the shallow end and it was like the slide's ladder was like right there. It just had to empty out into the deeper end. Uh, and I was told to stay away from this ladder, to stay away from, uh, and some of you guys are ahead of me in this story and that's okay. Uh, but I decided that I did not think that that was a good rule. And I slid down the slide when I was about five or six and, uh, I could not swim. And so I actually began to drown, uh, a, uh, person who was there, uh, they didn't have lifeguards on duty at this local pool. You can imagine that did not stay for very long. Uh, somebody tossed me a life jacket. Now, when they tossed me that life jacket, I could have, I could have, Complained. I'm sitting here drowning, and now you expect me to hold on to a life raft, like a life jacket? Man, I've gotta put on a thing while I'm drowning? Like, don't you care about me, right? But that wouldn't make any sense because the life jacket is the thing that's going to buoy me, right? Now I could think of the life jacket as being weighty or burdensome, but the truth is it's going to bring me life to complain about God's law, right? To complain about his kingship, the way that he has baked his goodness into all of creation so that it reflects him. To complain about that is like complaining, it's like me when I was 5 complaining that I didn't want the life jacket cuz now I got to put it on and it's only going to make me sink. <laughs> right? Uh I'm going to put on more clothes that doesn't make any sense, right? Well, it does if it brings us life. If we are bound by something good. This is why Jesus can say in Matthew eleven, twenty-eight through 30, he, he says of himself, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. A yoke is meant to be placed on beasts of burden like an ox to plow a field. How could adding a yoke make someone feel better who is heavy laden? Well, the reality is that the, the burden that Jesus is talking about when you come to him is a non-burden. His yoke is a non-yoke, to quote Dane Orland. To, to love him and obey him is to become fully human, to have a burden of sin lifted. When you, uh, what this means is that we come alive when we see that God has made this creation good and that we live within its goodness. When we choose to tell the truth, even when it might make us look bad or might strain a relationship, we dignify the agency of our neighbor. Uh, When you deny yourself a random hookup or sex with your significant other uh, that you are not married to, you avoid making a promise with your body that you actually don't intend to keep. Uh, When you choose not Cheat on an assignment in school and and uh, actually learn the material, or you accept a bad grade. Uh, The consequences. uh, The goodness is that you do not jeopardize your future or cheat your classmates out of their accomplishments. You love your neighbor. God, the Creator King, has made this world good, and we function best when we recognize His rule. Finally, I'd be amiss if I didn't make one final note about this passage and why we are here. Uh, Look with me lastly at verses 26 and 27. It says that God has made man in his likeness and in his image. Human beings are actually the only uh, created things that receive this honor. Uh, The creation account slows down here. Day six is the longest part of the whole story. Gets more verses than any other day. And humanity as such is God's kind of crowning creation. It's slows down and it gets to this peak where God is even reflecting on what has happened, that he has made man in his image after his likeness, male and female. He has created them after his likeness. And uh, that means that we are made to reflect God's character, right? His righteousness, his knowledge, his holiness. And this is at least partly why one of the Ten Commandments, right, that we are supposed to be image, images of God is not to make graven images of God. Right? Why would you make a graven image for a God who's already put his image on earth in his people? We were made to bear the image of him, to remind one another of his goodness, not any sort of uh, wood or clay or picture. And this is summed up, uh, this reality that we are supposed to bear God's image, that we have his knowledge, righteousness, and holiness baked into us, is that it's summed up in the theological term like common grace, right? Human beings still bear these traits today, like knowledge, righteousness, holiness, even if they don't have a relationship with God. Christians and non-Christians alike can have beautiful marriages, right? They can make good friends. Uh, they can be good parents. Uh, people are not just bad all the time. God, there's still something about us that bears God's image Uh, This is why the devaluing of other people is always such a grave sin, Uh, particularly sins like racism that look upon God's image and depreciate it. Uh, But uh, that brings us to an obvious point. We don't always reflect God's character perfectly anymore, do we? What happened? Right? God said we were really good. Everything was good here. It was good. It was good. It was good. What happened in between? Well, we'll talk about the specifics in the coming weeks. You'll have to come back next week to find out. Uh, but it's enough to say this, uh, that, that this image, while still present, it's fractured. It's been broken like a mirror. Do you feel that fracturing? Do you feel the ways that you are drowning in a search for life, in a search for your own happiness, refusing maybe the lifeline that is Christ? right? We're thinking uh, it would just add to your problems to take on God, that you wouldn't get the things you wanted or you needed to give up control to him. Have you placed your faith in Christ and in his work? Right? Have you recognized that Jesus came as the true image of the invisible God to restore our brokenness, to heal you from your sin, and to give you, to bring you new life? Let us believe that more deeply, all of us, (laughs) as our creator has made us to work, rest, and display his goodness to the world as his image. Let's pray.